Hi, Michaela LaFrac here. The podcast you are about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela LaFrac. Vermont's honeybees are healthy, and the number of colonies at the state's 1,200-plus apiaries are growing. Well, actually, that's not quite right. Vermont's honeybees are under threat, and the growing number of colonies is a red herring. What's going on here? Well, what you believe about Vermont's honeybees depends, as many things do, about uh, on who you talk to and how you interpret the data that's available. A recent report from the state's Agency of Agriculture has set off what's become a pretty heated debate about how Vermont's honeybee populations are doing. The outcome of that debate could affect more than just the bees. It ties into conversations about pesticide use, farming, water contamination, and climate change. Today, we're going to be speaking with two longtime beekeepers about the possible threats facing their bees, especially neonics, a type of pesticide that's most often used on corn and soybeans. We'll also speak with a state representative from Rutland County who's introduced a bill in the House to limit the use of neonics. It gets its first hearing tomorrow. But first, we are joined from Brattleboro by my colleague Howard Weiss-Tisman. He's been reporting on this issue for Vermont Public for the past month. Howard, happy Monday. Welcome to the show. Hey, Michaela. So, Howard, first, help us set the stage here. Why are we devoting a whole show to bees? Why are they so important? Well, people love bees, you know, the fuzzy little insects. Um, You know, we are all very impressed with the work they do. Um, You know, but in all seriousness, a big reason is that they make honey. They're a part of the agricultural community. Both backyard enthusiasts and commercial honey makers last year, uh, Behaven Honey Farm in Worcester won a really prestigious award, best tasting honey in the world. So... You know, the bees are an important part of um, agriculture here in Vermont. They also pollinate a lot of really important crops, apples, blueberries, pumpkins, tomatoes. Uh, They wouldn't grow without bees. So that's why bees are important. And also, as we're going to get into during the next hour, some people think bees are a kind of, um, you know, a way of looking at how our environment is doing. And uh, some of the people who are saying that the bees are dying are pointing to environmental impacts. And that's why it's important for us to pay attention to the health of the honeybees. Mm. All right. So it's an important part of the the state's agricultural economy. Um, We love honeybees, honey that they make. And they're also sort of a canary in the coal mine for how broader ecosystems are doing. So, Howard, a big report, uh, the first of its kind, came out at the end of last year from the Agency of Agriculture about Vermont's bee populations. What, What was the big takeaway? Right. So, you know, in the very large picture, the report was really glowing. It said that uh, the number of bees in Vermont have never been higher. This report pointed to the health of the bees. Um, There are a few parasites and diseases that are affecting bees all over the country. Um, And this report said that the state's doing a pretty good job at keeping that at bay. And they were 
pointing to the state's um, registration process over the past few years, the state has kind of uh, amped up its registration to make sure both that there's a way to control these parasites and diseases and to get a better handle on um, the bee uh, industry, if you will. And all that's great. I mean, the report was really top to bottom saying that Vermont's bee industry has never been stronger. It was a really glowing report. Mm. And I should note as well that we reached out to the Agency of Agriculture ahead of today's show, and a director there who worked closely on the report was set to join us today, but they had to cancel due to illness. Now, uh, Howard, you wrote an article about this report when it came out, uh, and the the report itself got a lot of backlash from beekeepers all around the state. Can you tell us about what some of that feedback was like? Yeah, it did. And here we are a month later um, talking about it. <laughs> so as I said, the report was really glowing top to bottom. Um, I just looked it over. It did mention the threat of pesticides, but even in the report, it said that the bees are, are healthy and the state's doing a good job at controlling these pesticides. But after our original story came out, we heard a lot from beekeepers across Vermont who really, you know, their story was couldn't be different. They said that mm -hmm. their bees are in crisis. They said that they're seeing um, bee deaths at rates that have never been seen in generations. And so they really pushed back on the state. And we've been reporting on this a while, so I'm not going to get all into the back and forth. But the beekeepers didn't really dispute the data. They more kind of took issue with the state's interpretation of it. They said that, yeah, the numbers are right, but the state, um, you know, didn't interpret them right. They said that when beekeepers have a lot of loss and um, see a lot of dead bees, they're kind of restocking. And if the state is not taking that into um, consideration, they're just not looking at the right things. So they really had a lot of trouble with that report. And they were worried about it. The Vermont beekeepers um, sent out a press release after the reports, uh, calling the report misleading and saying that it undermined the industry's efforts um, to protect and manage bees. Mm. So it was pretty strong language from yeah, them. Yeah, strong words. And what what is the state's response been to those concerns? Did they change their tune? Did you talk to anybody who worked on this report? Yeah, I did. I spoke to um, Brooke Decker. She is uh, she leads the apiary division at the Vermont Ag Agency of Agriculture, Food and Markets. And she really stood by her, her report. She said the numbers are accurate. She said that the state, um, you know, did its research. And, you know, one of the biggest problems Brooke had with it is just all this acrimony. And this is what she told me. It's challenging to see the, 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 the divide that's happening within the agricultural community around this, pitting you know, beekeepers against farmers. I think we all need each other in order to keep um, agriculture vibrant in the state. And Howard, she just said pitting beekeepers against farmers. Let's let's tease that out a bit more. One of the, the reasons why that dichotomy has kind of 
cropped up, and sorry, no pun intended, is that there's been this ongoing debate over over these pesticides, neonics as they're known, uh, and the role that they play in the health of the state's honeybees and the broader environment. Um, can you can you talk us through that? Just overview of it. Yeah, sure. So neonicotinoids are pesticides which were developed to control insects, really. And bees being insects, they are impacted by um, these pesticides. Now, the neonicotinoid um, research or industry has kind of grown, and a lot of people realize how dangerous these chemicals can be. And so a bunch of years ago, the seed companies came up with this idea of instead of asking farmers to spray these chemicals, which can get caught up in the wind and can travel, the seed companies are coating the seeds with these chemicals. And so as farmers are dropping corn seed into the ground, each seed is caked with this kind of powdery substance that has these chemicals in it. And some people say through that process, the chemicals get absorbed into the plant. It's in the plant's fiber. It's in the plant's pollen. And that's where um, people are saying that the bees are kind of, as they're collecting the nectar, they're kind of catching some of these chemicals, um, bringing it back to the hives and um, getting sick. Mm. And we're going to hear more later in the show from the state representative who has introduced a bill to to limit the use of neonics in the state. Um, that'll be in just a bit. I do want to pause here, Howard, because we have a couple callers um, and I want to bring in their voices here. Let's uh, start with Fran in Weybridge. Fran, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, this is a really important topic. I'm glad you're taking it up. Uh, I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, threats to native bees from neonicotinoids and other pesticides. It's not just the honeybees. The honeybees are not native bees. We have lots of other native bees like bumblebees. And by the way, uh, Howard, bumblebees are what uh, pollinate your tomatoes, not honeybees. <laughs> I can tell you that from thanks, my... Uh, thanks, We're all learning here. Exactly. It's interesting, uh, and it was new to me also. Um, but I wanted to say that um, I'm part of the Pollinator Pathway of Addison County, and we strongly support H106, which is the bill that's going to reduce the use of neonics. Uh, and I would like uh, to quote a very short passage from a study that was done on uh, the effects of pesticides on um, native bees. Uh, briefly, if you could, Fran, because we do have a number of callers. Yeah. Thank you. It'll be very. This is from the Vermont Center for Eco Studies, and Great. they say uh, the sublethal effects from feeding on pollen and nectar, which um, are sprayed or uh, affected by uh, neonics, lower reproduction rates, reduce navigation abilities poor foraging behavior, less successful pollination, and reduced immune functions. And so what that does is it weakens the native bees and the honeybees and leads to, can lead to organ failure and death. So that, that's my point. Um, 
that it's, uh, this is really important for us, and there's a lot of science behind this. This study was do- done in 2022 mm-hmm. from, by the Vermont Center for Eco Studies. So thanks for taking my call. Thank you, Fran. And yeah, her point there being that, that neonics can affect both honeybees, which we're focusing on in part today, as well as uh, native bees, which uh, very, very different in many ways. Uh, let's take one more call here. Michael in St. Albans. Michael, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, Michaela. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm a I'm a commercial beekeeper uh, with 50 years of experience here in Franklin County. Um, I really do know what's going on with my bees. Um, I, in fact, I teach beekeeping across the country and around the world. Mm. So when I say what I that I'm seeing something that I I'm not really I don't understand in my bees, um, believe me that I'm telling the truth now. Sure, there's lots of uh, things that can cause a colony of bees to collapse, you know, parasite like varroa mites, uh, some diseases. Yes, of course, we've been dealing with these kind of things, varroa mites, for 30-plus years. Um, but when we see colonies crashing uh, in uh, late summer, early autumn, um, for unexplained reasons, you know, we've, we've taken care of the varroa population. We have colonies that um, have populations of varroa below the treatment threshold, and yet the bees are dying anyway. And so in the recent tra- uh, pollen trapping scheme that we're, that we're um, running, we have found uh, in one apiary in Swanton 10.75 parts per billion of clothianid and neonicotinoid. This is the neonicotinoid that comes from corn seed treating. Now, and, and at the same time, this is in May. Now, there's no, there's no pollen, there's no uh, tasseling yet on the, on the corn. Mm. So where is this high level coming from? It's coming from planting dust that drifts across the wildflowers at, around the field. It's coming from puddles. We had a wet spring. Mm. It's coming from puddles in the field that the bees are gathering water from. In fact, the, pa- the dandelion plants that didn't get sprayed by Roundup, that, that were flourishing in that field, the dandelion pollen has 4.75 parts per billion. Michael, we're going to have to take a break in just a moment. I'm wondering uh, if it's all right if I'm going to just on one. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Anything over one part per billion is damaging to the beehives. So I'm seeing this. I'm seeing my bees get poisoned. And that's why I'm here, to see if we can't do something about it. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So Michael says he has 50 years of experience as a beekeeper in the state. He is noticing that his bees are in crisis, and it's not because of other other issues like varroa mites. Uh, he really ties it right back to the neonics. Uh, hearing so much... Um, concern and um, passion in the voices of the folks calling in, Howard. I wonder if that connects with um, the conversations that you had during your reporting and all the conversations you've had with with beekeepers over the past month. Yep, that is exactly what we've been hearing from people is that you know, these are these are folks who are very passionate about what they do, uh, whether it's a commercial beekeeper raising honey or someone in the backyard. 
it's something they love. And I think that as you hear in the voices of these folks calling in, they really believe that there's a bigger issue here that needs to be tackled, the use of these pesticides and um, how they are affecting the environment. And uh, they think that the bees are telling us a story here that we have to listen to. Mm. Well, Howard, before we need to wrap up for our break, I do want to ask you about this this group, the Agricultural Innovation Board, which has been looking into neonic use in the state. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what kind of the latest findings that, that they've released are, if any? Yeah, sure. So what's also really interesting about this story is that there's, um, I mean, it's very much under discussion, really internationally. Um, Europe has banned some of these chemicals. Uh, Quebec also has. Um, right next door, the state of New York passed legislation just last month trying to phase out these neonicotinoids. So there's a lot of work being done. Um, Heather Darby, who works at UVM Extension, did a bunch of planting last year in um, in Alberg and up in St. Albans, I believe. And again, a lot of this research is kind of developing. Um, it's brand new. And what Heather Darby found is that there's really no difference between the neonicotinoid seeds and the seeds that aren't coated. So she did, you know, different rows of corn. And she found that in Vermont last summer, the seeds that were coated with this pesticide really didn't do any better than the other ones. Um, Darby also measured, um, looked at soil and looked at water. And as our last caller pointed out, um, she found these pesticides in the soil and in the water. Something that these seed companies are doing is that they're making this pesticide um, very strong and very uh, water soluble. So it doesn't disappear. It sticks around the environment. So the research is coming out. Um, we have that clip from Samantha Alger. Should yes, we, we, we do. Get to that? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's go to that. Yeah. Tell us about who we're about to hear from, Howard. So she runs the UVM B Lab, and she's been doing some research also. Surprisingly, there's not a lot of this going on. And so she is setting up traps and measuring how much of this uh, poison pollen, if you will, is on bees and what they're bringing back to the hives. And this is what she told the House Ag Committee last week. We've got uh, beekeepers all around the state that have put pollen traps on their hives. So as a bee comes in, the pollen is pulled off of their legs and fall, falls into a trough. And then we collect that pollen and send it to a lab at Cornell. And... Um, we're finding about a quarter of the samples um, coming in to have uh, neonicotinoid residues on them. And so these are neonics that are in insecticides that the bees are coming in contact with during their foraging bouts while they're foraging maybe a mile, two, three miles from their hive and then getting it on their bodies and then coming back into the hive. Um, and we're finding it in the pollen that they're collecting out in the environment and bringing it back. And very quickly, Michaela, I'll just point out, you know, this research that's being done in Vermont, it's really cutting edge. Um, the scientists here are working closely with folks over at Cornell, and they're really doing some of the most advanced research on these chemicals in the country. Mm. 
Well, Howard, it sounds like you've landed yourself on the B beat for the foreseeable future. <laughs> Lots to follow. And we're going to dive into more of these threads later in the hour. We do need to take a short break here, though. Howard Weiss-Tisman, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Great talking to you, Michaela. Bees, as we know, play a key role in our ecosystem. They produce honey and beeswax, but they also help maintain biodiversity through pollination. Today on the show, we are looking at Vermont's honeybee population and some differences in opinion on how healthy it has been. Just this past weekend, the Vermont Beekeepers Association discussed this issue at its annual winter meeting. Their keynote speaker, Andrew Munkress, is one of our guests today. He is the owner of Lemon Fair Honeyworks in Cornwall, and he's a former president of the Beekeepers Association. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you here. And we are also joined by Chaz Mraz, a third generation, is that right? That's right. Beekeeper and honey producer with Champlain Valley Apiaries in Middlebury. His grandfather founded the business in 1931. Chaz, welcome back. Thank you. I'm also a past president of the BBA. You so. are as well. All right. We got, <laughs> we got two a lot of them. <laughs> former presidents here. This show is stacked. All right. First, before we, we dive in, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about each of your businesses, um, how long you've been doing it, how big they are. Uh, Andrew, let's start with you. Well, we've been keeping bees for almost 20 years now, and we're based out of Cornwall. And we produce honey, comb honey, and then we also produce a lot of queens. Uh, they're mostly sold through a bee supply company uh, called Better Bee, and we raise uh, nucleus colonies as well. In a good year, we try to sell bees to people who are getting started in the in the business. Hmm. And I heard that, that um, some uh, folks who are business will take their colonies out of state during certain parts of the year uh, to help with pollination in other, in other areas. Is that something that you Yeah, there's, we, Chaz and I are both stationary beekeepers, mm -hmm. and there are plenty of Migratory beekeepers that move their bees around. Uh, both paradigms uh, work for beekeeping. Uh, we pollinate farms, but we leave the hives there year-round. Hmm. And uh, Chaz, tell us a little bit more about Champlain Valley apiaries. Well, Michael, you gave a great introduction. So, um, yes, my grandfather started in 1931. We're almost pushing 100 years here. And um, we are honey producers well. And we also have a packing business, Champlain Valley Apiaries, uh, which I think many of the listeners are familiar with our honey. Mm -hmm. And we have a another kind of strange product. We also collect bee venom for immunology drugs and things like that. Oh, fascinating. Um, so diversified, like most farms have to be yeah. these days. Yeah. And uh, we're still going. And would I, like to stay around a lot longer. Yeah, I'm curious about that. What kind of conversations did you have with your grandfather, with your parents, uh, about how how business was uh, decades ago when the APRA first started compared to how it is today? What are the big changes? Well, the big changes are the loss of bees. Yeah. Um, I, I remember myself. I mean, I, I worked in the bee yards with my grandfather and my father, but we moved to Middlebury in 1978 when my father was taking over the business for my grandfather. And so my brother and I were out in the field sometimes then in the summer and extracting and so on. And so I remember bees back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And back then we normally, uh, normal winter losses were below 10%. And I remember distinctively when 
we lost 10% of our bees thinking, boy, that was a rough winter. We didn't yeah. have enough January thaw. And now we're losing, you know, God knows. I mean, sometimes it's 30%, sometimes it's 45%, sometimes it's worse than that. Mm. And, you know, being of the size and the scale we are, we, we prefer to run 1,000, 1,200 colonies. Um, the last time I was close to that was 2019. We built up to 1,100 colonies. But we keep getting kicked down. I've been kicked down to just above 400 colonies from yeah. that number. And we keep building our bees back up, and then we end right back up where we started. Mm. And we're losing bees, interestingly, now. We're losing them all season, pretty much. Not so much in the spring, but around about July, we start to lose bees. Mm. And then it gets worse in the fall, and many of these bees aren't even don't even get packed for the winter. I mean, they're dead before it's time to put them away. Mm. So. Well, what you're describing sounds very different from what the the state uh, agency of agriculture's report described about the health of bees. And again, I should note to listeners that we reach out to the agency of agriculture ahead of today's show. We uh, were expecting to have a guest who had worked closely on this report. He had to cancel due to illness. Um, Andrew, I'm curious if you've had a sim- similar experience uh, at your apiary uh, to what Chaz is describing. Yeah, so the, the the winter loss really fluctuates year over year, yeah. and what we get from all the members of the VBA is that the the twenty five percent loss that the agency reports really isn't accurate. If you look uh, at the Be Informed Partnership, with which is a non political, you know, non profit group that re, that tracks uh, honeybee losses, they're showing an average over the last four years. Uh, loss in Vermont that's actually higher than 50%. Mm. And that's an annual loss, not not just a winter loss. So like Chaz was saying, it you can lose colonies any time of year mm. uh, now. It's not just over the winter. Mm. Um, what, were, what were the big topics of conversation at the, the annual meeting this past weekend? I imagine that this report came up a whole lot. This report did come up a whole lot. Uh, when it first came out, a lot of beekeepers and actually the general public reached out to the VBA. And some of the general public was pretty excited, like, hey, are the bees doing better? This sounds great. And we had to say, actually, this is not a really science-based uh, press release. And the situation for the bees hasn't really changed. And so th- our meeting on Saturday focused really on a particular class of pesticides that's extremely toxic to honeybees. And uh, my talk in the morning presented the, the, the effects, both acute and sublethal on honeybees and how it contributes to these colony losses that we're seeing across the state. Mm. In the afternoon, Dr. Alger from UVM uh, presented the results of a pollen analysis collected from honeybee hives uh, showing the levels of these neonicotinoid pesticides in Vermont mm. beehives. Mm. And that's Sam Alger, who we heard a little bit of uh, at the beginning of today's show. Let's pause here and get get some calls in for a moment. Uh, we have Steve in Fairfax on the line. Steve, what's your, your comment or your question? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I do have a comment. I've been a beekeeper for many years, hobbyist, and... I know a little bit about medicine, having been a respiratory care practitioner for 40 years. I have a lot of mentors with my beehives, including my Palmer and Bianca. I have not had a beehive survive more than one winter. 
Mm. I'm doing everything right as far as dealing with the varroa mycos. Thinking about medicine, there must be another variable that's affecting my beehive survival. And the variable, I believe, is pesticides. They're giving them another health challenge that I, I can't do anything about. Mm. And that's my comment. Well, thank you. Thank you, Steve, for your call. Um, Chaz, as Steve said, there's so many variables that go into the health of a bee colony. Uh, but lots of fingers are pointing right now directly at uh, neonics, at, at these pesticides. How can you tell, at least with your own colonies, w- you know, what, um, what's responsible for, for a decline or for, for winter loss? Well, mainly it's observation. There's a, yeah. just a tremendous amount of science showing what kind of damage these neonicotinoids are doing. And there's been a lot of science also saying how useless they are as a crop protector. They're not benefiting the farmers who are using them for the last 20 years um, either. They're not benefiting the crops. So they're being put out there really for no reason. I guess they're being put out there so they can be sold. Mm. Um and they're really causing much problems beyond the bees. Uh, the bees, we are the canary in the coal mine. We're, you know, we can now let our dairy farmers know and things what these, what these products are doing to them, mm. how they're destroying their soil. The, 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 these, there's been studies um, on, on soil and neonicotinoids in the soil, and the farmers are working really hard to do, you know, no-till, rotating crops, um, all these practices to make their soil better and more alive so that it can absorb nitrogen better and water and so on. And then these seeds go into the soil and they kill everything. They kill the microbes and the earthworms and the beetles in the soil. The plant only absorbs, I think it's less than 5% of the seed coating, less than 3 um, uh, Andrew's over here holding his fingers up. <laughs> Less than 3% of the pesticide. <laughs> They're incredibly water-soluble. And so over 95% of the pesticides ending up in, in the field. Mm. And, and water transmits them where they weren't intended to be in the first place. Mm. And the caller's absolutely right. There's a big another factor here. Now, it's not probably the only pesticide that affects bees. But it's a pesticide that's not of any benefit to the people using them. So it's, you know, common sense to stop using them. Mm. And we're having a hard time finding common sense. Well, I do want to bring in one more voice in the conversation. We have online Representative Robin Chestnut Tangerman, a Democrat from Rutland County, who's the sponsor of this bill we've been uh, hitting on to restrict the use of neonics in Vermont. It's known as H706. Representative, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michaela. So we, we've been discussing um, uh, for a while now the um, the potential effects of these neonics on uh, honeybees, on other pollinators. Um, what made you decide to, to work on this bill this session? Well, the, uh, the use of neonics and the, the impact on pollinators has been evident for, for quite a while. Um, but it's been really difficult to find a, a meaningful action. And the thing that changed in this equation is that New York State just passed a bill um, over time prohibiting the use of the sale and use of neonics, uh, particularly treated seed. New York State is big enough to drive 
the economic change needed the, the, to drive um, seed companies to set up alternative programs, distribution systems for untreated or alternatively treated seed. Uh, New York has a million acres under cultivation with, with neonic treated seeds. Mm. And so they can actually drive the change and we can help support them in this quest uh, and benefit from from the partnership. Mm. And Quebec has also somewhere recently um, uh, limited the use of neonics, right? Uh, Quebec did this in 2019. Right. And so we actually have five years of data from their experience, which is really helpful. Uh, people like um, Andrew, uh, your guest on there, and uh, one of your guests, and uh, Samantha... Um, uh, Alger. You know, yeah, yes, Dr. Alger, um, have great data um, and are doing a good, good job of collecting data from elsewhere, from their own experiments. Uh, the data is very clear. It's the political will and the economic uh, will that, uh, that has been lacking so far. Mm. Oh, and well, it, I think this is a great opportunity. Well, Andrew, I'm curious for your thoughts on that, too, the the political will. Again, I, I don't want uh, I, to recognize the fact that we don't have the Agency of Agriculture here with us as planned. But, um, you know, we I also want to keep this from looking like a conversation that is like the beekeepers versus the farmers, you know, both both groups struggling to to, you know. Yeah, and keep their businesses alive. Um, Andrew, first, I'm wondering what, you, what, what your thoughts are on that kind of dichotomy. So, you know, there's been some attempts politically to, to regulate the use of neonics in Vermont previously. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons they didn't uh, go anywhere is because of these exact concerns that this would be harmful to dairy farmers, to crop farmers. And just uh, last week, UVM Extension put together a panel of four Quebec farmers and a Quebec agronomist to talk about their experience over the last five years transitioning away from neonic-treated seeds. And the big takeaway from that is that all four of those farmers uh, saw no change in their yields. They did not have pest problems. Uh, there There is an alternative seed treatment that's still legal in Quebec at this point, and some of the farmers switched to using that on some of their acreage but they quickly found they didn't even need that seed treatment. Mm. So what we're seeing is there's, as Chaz was saying earlier, there's no economic benefit, there's no yield benefit to using these treatments. The seed costs less without the coating applied to the seeds, and the benefits to the pollinators are huge. Mm. So Representative Chestnut Tangerman, is it then just a question of, of um, education and communication? Well, I think, Michaela, your your frame of this is really critical because this is not oppositional. This is not beekeepers on one side and farmers on the other side. Farmers are stewards of the land, and they take that very seriously um, and uh, and want to do what is beneficial for the environment. This you know helps them to have a healthy ecosystem with, with healthy pollinators. So it's really not an either-or or one side versus the other. It's a matter of... Um, finding where they overlap, uh, which is um, broadly, I think, in, in this case. And the, the problem is that farmers have been told all along that they need these tools um, or they will suffer crop losses. What we're finding out is that they, these are valuable tools, but apparently they don't need them, or mm-hmm. to the, not to the extent uh, Quebec went from virtually 100% treated corn seed to 
0.5% treated corn seed and has suffered no significant crop loss. That's pretty compelling. I want to grab a couple more calls here. First, we've had uh, James waiting very patiently on the line. James, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, It's a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, I think um, um, your guest, Howard, at the beginning of the program, Mm -hmm. uh, he began by talking about how important bees are because they make honey. And by the way, they have an impact on the environment. He has that completely backward. Yes, of course, they make honey, and, and that is a, an important uh, uh, economic uh, uh, engine for the, for the state's agriculture. But, but honey is a byproduct of what the bees do. The, the, the bees' pollination is so important. It's right up there with um, photosynthesis. The bees are a fundamental part of all agriculture and a, and a society that permits the, the poisoning of bees is uh, uh, fussing with, um, with uh, ruining agriculture completely. Um, I think the report that came out of the, uh, the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, if it does nothing else, it, it, um, it is an exhibit of the bias, the heavy bias that the Vermont Agency of Agriculture has for dairy farmers because dairy farmers use neonicotinoids to coat their seeds as a matter of course. Mm. Um, and the, 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 true, the true problem here is conventional farming. The dairy farmers are also responsible for 45% of the pollution that enters the lake and something like 18 or 20% of the, of the pollutants that mm. enter the atmosphere. The state needs to face the damage that conventional farming does in Vermont and stop doing anything that either threatens the bees or even might be threatening bees. You cannot threaten bees. Well, thank you, James. I appreciate your call. And I also want to note, again, um, for listeners who are just tuning in, that we were planning to have a representative of the Agency of Agriculture on today's show. They were not able to join, had to cancel due to illness. Um, Chaz, I'm wondering, you know, James brought up this this um, uh, feeling that he has that the Agency of Agriculture is acting on behalf of uh, dairy farmers more so than the interests of beekeepers and the bees. Again, they are not here to answer that claim. I don't want to pr- promote it, but I'm curious for you, do you feel like your your concerns are being heard by the state? Uh, no, our concerns aren't being heard properly. The the James is is right to point out many of these things. Um, the state of Vermont needs to look at the science, and I think they're trying to a knee jerk reaction to protect farmers. And I want to make it clear to everybody: there's no separation of beekeepers and farmers. We are all farmers. We are all Vermont farmers. We're all part of the same agricultural community. And I've never met a dairy farmer, a row cropper, an orchardist that wants to kill my bees. Um, I don't have to explain the importance of pollinators to a dairy farmer. Um, And I don't blame the farmers for this problem. Uh, These chemicals have been forced upon them, you know, as the latest, greatest technology and that. And I think the farmers finding that they've been paying for them for 20 some odd years without any benefit of using them and actually doing the damage they are to the soil and so on are probably going to be 
pretty upset, and I don't think they're going to need much. Uh, if they are exposed to the science that we have been, much uh, encouragement to go to stop using mm. them. Um, go back to your question, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, just, just about like, whether you're, you feel like you're, when you bring these well, concerns to the, the state, state of Vermont seems to be, you know, the, the thing about going, you know, there's so many beehives in Vermont, so the bee industry is thriving. Yeah. That's just, it's not even a, me- a metric for bee health. Yeah. It, it's, there's nothing scientific about it. There's nothing, it's more of a propaganda ploy than anything, which is really disappointing. I mean, the science is there. We hand it to them. We will give them all the access to it. And I don't know if they're, you know, think they're protecting Vermont dairy farmers and row croppers. They're not Mm. because this stuff is not helping them, not hurting them. I mean, it's hurting them. And as a beekeeper, the canary in the coal mine, I can tell farmers this. This stuff is bad. I mean, Mm. they have a 1,700-pound cow at the end of their well, it's going to take a lot for that to end. But James is very right. This is the fundamental, uh, you know, pollinators, the microbes, the bugs. They're the beginning of our ecosystem. They are what make the world a living space. Hmm. Well, let's bring in another caller who I, I think might have a, a slightly different opinion here. Barney in Cornwall is calling in. Barney, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Yeah, um, I I uh, appreciate Chaz and Andrew's perspective. Uh, they know I'm an apple grower out in Cornwall, and uh, as Chaz said, the last thing any farmer, apple growers or other, wants to do is damage the or kill the pollinators that are so important to us um, in getting our apple crops to market. But um, I I do think that from an apple grower's perspective, there's um, a missing part of this conversation, and that is um, how neonics play an important role in very targeted applications towards certain pests that <clears throat> that we really don't have any other tools against. Uh, one of the things we've done at our farm through progressive practices is we've eliminated the use of, uh, voluntarily eliminated the use of organophosphates and broad-spectrum um, pyrethroids. Um, both which are toxic, well, pyrethroids are not toxic to humans as much, but but are very, very uh, damaging to beneficial insects in our orchards. So um, as a result, we have to use neonics two or three times a season. We do so very carefully um, in, in that we, we try to apply only when at night or when flowers are closed so that we don't endanger as much um, our pollinators even when, even when we're not pollinating, that would be, we would make these applications in July and August. So my point is I would be really careful about um, taking a class of pesticide off the table um, because there are responsible uses of the neonic pesticide. And as an apple grower, I, I, I take a lot of pride in making sure we use that pesticide in particular very carefully. Mm. Um, I think when we reduce the, ability to apply certain classes of pesticides. There's a lot of collateral damage that is unintended. Um, and I think apple growers would, would fall in that category. There's no easy solution. And I certainly think um, the wide uh, 
application or, or application to seeds as is being discussed on this program is, is a problem, which I don't really know the details about. But um, apple growers are another type of farm in Vermont that need that pesticide um, for targeted use. Yeah, thank you so much for calling in, Barney. Uh, Andrew, I'm curious for your, your thoughts here. Yeah, so, you know, Barney has a valid point. And in fact, this bill, as introduced, does include an exemption for certain situations uh, where no other class of pesticide will function. So that concern has been taken into consideration in the drafting of this bill. And I just want to reiterate that the biggest concern is the use of neonics as a powdered seed treatment, which is used prophylactically. There's no uh, scouting to determine if there's actually a pest problem prior to the application of this treated seed. It's used on about 99% of all the corn in the state of Vermont. So what we're really concerned about as beekeepers is the overuse of this pesticide and uh, its use as a seed treatment because of the translocation through the soil and through the air as dust. And that's a pretty far cry from what Barney's describing at his orchard where he's practicing IPM, he's scouting for pests, he's using targeted applications. So again, uh, this bill does phase out the use of neonics, but there are opportunities uh, to demonstrate that you have a need and you would still, you know, under those circumstances have a mm. access to this tool. Yeah. And it sounds like you two have met Barney before. It sounds like these no, conversations well. are, yeah. are happening on the ground, right? Yes. And Barney brings up a very good point. And I know a lot of orchardists that are using these successfully. Um, the, and I think they recognize that the chemical is a different animal from the organophosphates and things they used in the past, and they have to respect that. Uh, but I think using a chemical properly, which they're doing, and not prophylactically, and not when it's not of any benefit, is a whole different world from what we're talking about. I would not want to take uh, those tools away from Barney, when, and I know he's a responsible orchardist, and he's using them responsibly. And I think most are. I think most farmers are responsible. They want to do the best they can, and and but they need the right information. Mm. We were, speaking of that information, we received an email from Paul in Callis who writes, I've been keeping bees as a sideline in Vermont for 30 years. It used to be a lot easier. I was mostly hands-off until the early 2000s. Now I lose hives every year, mostly over winter, and not always, and often not always because I'm behind in my treatments. Every every year, sorry, Paul writes, I fill out the state apiary registry form, and there's no question asking how many hives I've lost. We can get better information from beekeepers just by asking better questions. Uh, Andrew, that seems like one of the real takeaways of this conversation here is there's there's something missing between uh, the the communication how and the type of information that's being collected from beekeepers. So yeah, there's been right? there's been several attempts to have surveys, you know, getting losses and. There is a strong libertarian streak among a lot of beekeepers, and so the information that gets shared with the state by some beekeepers is not as accurate as it could be, which is why we like to look to the Bee Informed Partnership and some of these nonpartisan groups to, mm -hmm. to get real data. Uh, and UVM is also collecting lost data and, and as well as the pesticide data. So there are sources for good information out there. Well, lots more to talk about here, especially as this bill moves its way potentially through the legislature. Andrew Munkris with Lemon Fair Honey Works in Cornwall, thank you so much for your time today on this.
We're also joined by Chaz Mraz with Champlain Valley Apraries. Chaz, thank you. Thank you, Michaela, for having us.